Good morning, everyone. Appreciate the presence of the Lord here this morning. Amen. It's always good to have an excellent worship service before you pray before you preach. It makes it a little easier. <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. Well, 246 years ago, something very special and historic happened. On July 2nd, the Second Constitutional Congress uh, voted to declare their independence, and then they drafted, and the next day, two days later, on July 4th, they all ratified that same declaration. They were frustrated, these British colonials is what they were called at the time, with British rule and unfair taxes, lack of representation in Parliament. And so they decided that they'd had enough. And now there had already been some battles. We know that. The um, the war really started a year earlier, April 17th, 1775, with the battles of Lexington and Concord. It ended 1783, September 3rd, with the Treaty of Paris. Eight years Four months, two weeks, and one day. We were at war. Oh, and according to some of the research I did, approximately 70,000 American patriots died during active military service in fight and cause for our freedom, our independence. <clears throat> now, there was a smallpox epidemic at the time. There were other things going on. So whether they were direct com combat deaths, probably not likely, more like 7,000, maybe 10,000, but 70,000 people died in one way, shape, or form fighting for our independence. Isn't that amazing? Since then, American military losses, I looked this up just yesterday, 2.9 million casualties have occurred since then. Casualties include wounded, and they include both combat and non-combat deaths. 2.9 million. We take our freedom very seriously, don't we? 2.9 million people have died in some way, shape, or form, whether it's combat, non-combat, or being wounded in battle of some sort. We take our freedom very seriously. In fact, we have drafted it into the founding documents of our nation, including one that we appreciate. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a readdress of grievances. We take that one pretty seriously, don't we? <laughs> or else we wouldn't be here. That's the first amendment to our Constitution of the United States. We wrote it into our laws. I want to read a little bit from the Declaration of Independence. It's a document that I think everybody should read at least once, but we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government. Very interesting that they wrote what we have Right, as inalienable, implied, expected rights. And one of them is life and liberty. 
into the pursuit of happiness. Freedom. We wrote it right into what we expect as a basic human right to be free. And then, to show how seriously we take it, but, and this is all in the preamble, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. In other words, we take these so seriously that if we feel like it's being violated, we're fighting for it. It's our right, it's our duty to fight for it. Freedom. We take it very seriously. Now, this is political, economic, national freedom. Very different than the freedom of Christ and in Christ. But I thought it was very important on this day where we celebrate, celebrate our independence to talk about what true freedom really is. Because it's something that is in the fabric or fiber of everything that we talk about here as Americans all over the place. Freedom. What is true freedom? Because we are the land of the free, right? It's something that I'm very proud of as an American and as a someone who's had family in the military who've served. I'm very proud of that. But we're also part of a higher race, the kingdom of heaven. I'm very proud of the freedoms that I have in Christ as well. But what are those freedoms, right? What are those freedoms? It's not the same thing. Freedom in Christ is not the same as political or economic freedom. In fact, some of the most harshly oppressed people in the world had absolute and complete freedom in Christ, right? Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about Silas. The Bible tells us that truly, spiritually, we're not free at all, are we? Now, that seems contradictory, doesn't it? He tells us we're free, we're free in Christ, we're free, a new creation. If the Son has made you free, you are free indeed. But then he says, you're not your own. In fact, you were bought with a price. In fact, he uses a word that means slave, which means you have no rights whatsoever. So doesn't that seem like a little bit of a paradoxical statement? <laughs> and then he says, on top of that, you would be not only a slave to Christ or the Father, but to serve, with that same word, one another in love. So we were to be servants to each other, right? Very interesting. So the Apostle Paul has, no surprise, a lot to say about freedom. And we're going to spend some time in Galatians today. And in Galatians, he warns us against entanglements with the law or any kind of human works by which we can attempt to be justified or free ourselves from sin's penalty through either our own works or our own ways, but to realize that we belong to Christ. We are his slave, if you will, his servant, his bond slave. Okay, We belong to him. So we're going to look at man's view of freedom to contrast it. We're going to look at the Bible's view of freedom, and then we're going to talk about the war that the war for independence, if you will, the war for freedom spiritually that we all go through and we face every day and even Paul talks about. So first, man's freedom. Paul was concerned when writing to the Galatians that the wrong influence was, was in uh, infesting the church, if you will. The world held that freedom means the right to be and do as you please how you please, when you please, wherever you please. It means that you can do your own thing. How often do we hear that? You can be yourself. You do you. 
right? You hear that all the time, don't you? You do you, man. Go ahead. Go for it. Is that true freedom? No, actually, Paul says that's the, uh, that's the, that's the worst kind of bondage, right? Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary says freedom is exemption from necessity and choice and action. It's the right at any choice. It's the right to have any choice as long as your own personal choice. What does that sound like? Well, turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. These are probably very familiar verses to all of us. Referring to Lucifer, the son of the morning, he has said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Me, 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 isn't it? Five times. I will, I will, I will. What is he doing? He says, I want my own way. It's almost like a little temper tantrum if you think about it. I will, I will, I will. So the thought of doing our own thing is basically coming from the original, well, not basically, it is coming from the original sin in heaven. Lucifer's pride, exalting himself, saying, I can be like God. I can do that. I can have the congregation on the sides of the north, which we know is heavenly Mount Zion. I can have all that. I can be like him. And that disperses throughout all of time from Adam and Eve until now. You don't believe me? Let's look at Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3, where William Shakespeare says, <clears throat> Neither a borrower or a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. There's the good port. This above all, to thine own self be true. Hmm. It's even in our literature. To your own self be true. That's a fancy way, Shakespearean way of saying, you do you, buddy. Right? Just do your own thing. It's all good. It's a satanic thought. Literally. That's not true freedom. The Bible teaches us it, that this is a license to throw off moral restraint in the pursuit of our own selfish goals. Let's look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppresses the truth. It's our own wicked way of looking to try and suppress the truth and justify our own wickedness by saying, well, that's just how I am. That's me doing my own thing, Right? It's satanic. This kind of freedom is really bondage. We're bonding ourselves to that unrighteousness, that iniquity. 2 Peter 2, 17 through 19. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
This is the wrong kind of slavery. This is the slavery that nobody wants. We are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to unrighteousness. We are giving ourselves over to that. We belong to it. Right? We are, we belong to sin. It's satanic, right? To say, I'm going to do my own thing. But what does the Bible really say about freedom? Now, again, keeping in the context of Galatians, we're going to look at a negative and then we're going to contrast it with a positive. He is, Paul is talking about two basically extreme views of freedom that was happening in the Galatian church. The first one was they were reverting back to the law of Moses as a means of spirituality and righteousness. They were assuming, they were expecting and demanding that we adhere to the law of Moses. And that was a way to say that we were justified. And that was a way of proving out and working out our own salvation. Well, to nullify this, he writes the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 6. Well, you could read verses 2 through 12, really. But verse 6, Wherefore in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. He's saying it doesn't matter if you keep the law or not if you don't have faith in your heart. So that this rigid adherence to the law, this legalism that they had, that they thought was making them free and keeping them free and earning their salvation was actually putting them in more bondage. And for the Jews, as Gentiles were converting to Christianity, they were expecting them to keep all of these Jewish rituals as well and saying this is your only really way to salvation. But it was more bondage than actual freedom, wasn't it? It says, only faith which works by love in our hearts. Relying completely on the law nullifies our position in Christ, doesn't it? The whole the blood of Christ covers everything else because it misplaces our faith from putting it in Christ to putting it in words and letters and laws that if we follow Christ and listen to him, we don't really even need. Rather than trusting in Christ, they believe that the law would save them or worse yet, that they could earn their own salvation through righteous works. So legalistic adherence to the law produces service. Sure, we'll all be servants to the law, but it'll be joyless. It'll be obligatory rather than coming from a wanting to please the Lord and a love for him. So that's really the contrast Paul is making. They're saying we're going to serve this law and, and all it was producing was a bunch of mindless robots, which nobody really wants, right? <laughs> it was obligatory service versus I'm doing this because I want to, I love to, I choose to, because I love you. The second extreme was upon hearing of their freedom in Christ, some people assumed they could do as they pleased. This philosophy resulted in non-loving, selfish exploitation that ignored the needs of others and acted in ways that were harmful to the body of Christ and God's purpose for the church. Paul wrote Galatians 5, 13, and 14 to counteract this mentality. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but love, but by love serve one another. Liberty can be dangerous. It doesn't mean we're free from restraints, it doesn't mean we're free from other obligations, or that we can do our own thing. 
Let's look at, actually, restraints are good, aren't they? Restraints are good. Look at Isaiah. Anytime I think about restraints, I think of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, this parable of a vineyard, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord is using this parable to describe the children of Israel. It's the hosts of Israel. They, and he's talking about, I have I set this vineyard up? I've nourished it. I've watered it. And I've expected good grapes. And you've given me sour grapes. And one of the things he says he did in verse 2 is he says, I fenced it in. I fenced it in. Now, when you think of a, a, a fence, you think of keeping things out, right? So, which is part of it. It's protection. We don't want, if you, put, if you don't want, if you're putting a, a garden up, you build a fence so the critters can't get in and eat all your good fruit. But it also kind of holds that garden in place, doesn't it? It holds us in place from going out into danger and doing things that we shouldn't. So restraints, in this case, are good. And then he says, you produce sour grapes, you didn't listen. So one of the things he says he does in verse 5, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge, and it shall be eaten up. I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. So as a judgment, because they were not obedient to him and not listening to him, what does he say? I'm going to take away your restraints. I'm going to take away your protection. And I'm going to take away your restraints. And I've seen this in, in the lives of people at, at certain points throughout my life where, they, where they're always kind of constricting and fighting against the constraints that God puts on them. And they say, well, I'm so constrained. And you can hear them say that sometimes. It's too hard to be doing it this way. I just want it to be easier. And God says, okay, no more restraints. That is super dangerous, right? Restraints are good. And it's, it is a freedom, really. To, to be able to walk in that and be in that way. Even Paul had a thorn in his flesh to keep him from being exalted above measure, and he didn't complain about it. He said, he prayed about it three times. The Lord said, no, I'm even leaving this here for a purpose. And instead of complaining about it for the rest of his life, he says, most gladly, therefore, what? I will joy. His, in, when I am weak, he is strong. I'll rejoice in this. So restraints are good. I think I always think of a kite, right? A kite going up in the air, beautiful, fun. But what's holding that kite? A restraint. What is, what is that little piece of string doing? Well, it's helping it fly, first of all, the physics of the whole deal. But it's also keeping it in place so it doesn't fly away and just go off and randomly end up in somebody's backyard. It's just that little piece of string that guides it, causes it to fly, but also keeps it from going off and being destroyed, right? Just that little restraint, little piece of string. So freedom is never a means to cast off restraint or do our own thing. But what are we called to do? He says, serve others in love. Verse 14, Galatians 5 again. Serve others in love. That word serve is the Greek word duolos, which means slave. It occurs 124 times in the New Testament. It means someone who belongs to another, a bond slave with no ownership rights whatsoever. Now what happens with this word is, and even in the, in the, in the authorized version is, some call it the King James, they translate it incorrectly into a word like servant 
or bondservant. A servant is someone who gets paid. A bondservant is someone who gets paid. A slave has no rights at all whatsoever. So it's a misapplication of what our relationship to Christ is. We're not his servant. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't, uh, is not obliged to pay us anything, nor can we in any way, shape, or form earn anything from him. We belong to him. We have no ownership, right? And that's the part we have to understand. And he uses that word slave to help us understand that. We have nothing that to offer the Lord in payment for his forgiveness. He has totally done it all on his own. By his blood, through his blood, he has gained us. And we belong to him. So here's that great paradox. We're called to be free. We are free in Christ, but then we're to be slaves. Sounds weird. Slavery to one another and to God in love. Serve, duolos, be a slave to each other. Interesting. It's nothing at all like the slaver we're thinking about. We have a very negative view of slavery here in the United States, as we should. Uh, it's wicked in the way that it, the flesh took it out. Slavery to the flesh and the law results in death, misery, and frustration. It causes us to be consumed and torn apart. However, slavery to God results in true freedom, maximum blessing. We belong to him. We're not our own. It's voluntary as well. We're aligning ourselves with him. Some of the history in our country was, wasn't voluntary at all. They forced some of those things on people that was just utter wickedness. In today's parlance, it has a very negative connotation. However, the slave to Christ is far from oppressed. When we belong to him, that's where the true freedom really lies, in that we're not our own, that we're not doing our own thing. It's such a release almost, isn't it? Where we just, whew, I don't have to worry about any of that because God's in control. All I have to do is be obedient and say yes. Or when he says to say no, say no. It's awesome. So freedom, in the biblical sense, is absence of uninvited control, which is what the Founding Fathers put kind of in their own words into the Declaration of Independence. The consent of the governed, that was the whole problem. They were getting all these taxes without any representation whatsoever. It was uninvited control. They put it right in the same words. But we are free at salvation, at water baptism, from the uninvited control of sin. And if you need to prove that out, read Romans chapter 6, verse 17 through 18. The whole chapter, really, if you wanted to. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being then made free from sin. You became the servants of righteousness. So you're going to serve one thing or the other. Here, you've been made free from sin, and now you are a servant, same word, duolos, of righteousness. You're a slave to righteousness. Galatians 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in liberty, wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You've got your freedom. Don't go back to being a slave to sin once again. The ISV says it a different way. It says, The Messiah has set us free so that we may enjoy the benefits of freedom. So keep on standing firm in it and stop putting yourselves under the yoke of slavery again. What an amazing thought. Stop putting yourself under the yoke of slavery again. 
So freedom is the absence of the uninvited control of sin. It's also the ability and the power to do what we should. It's not the right to do as we please, but the power and capacity to do what we should, right? And there's a big difference there. We know what we should do. And outside of the uninvited control of sin, we have the power, the capacity, the ability to do it, right? That's the true freedom. Amen? This is the whole point of of being in Christ, that new creation. All right. And linking that to serving, because in verse 15, Galatians 5, uh, 13 through 15, we'll read them. For brethren, you have been called into liberty. Also use not liberty for an occasion for the flesh, which we just talked about, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love, agape love, divine love, fulfills the law. Fulfills the law. And Jesus himself said these are... This is one of the two most important commandments there are. One of the first, of course, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit. But the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Through divine love, loving our neighbors. This is how we have true freedom. I love how it's linked to freedom. Through love, serve one another. Be servants to each other. Now, what does that mean? Well, could mean anything, really. Your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? We could go on a whole diatribe and teaching discourse on who my neighbor is. I would say it's anybody that we can show the love of Christ to. We can. We should. And God provides, verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, Then I say that, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We are to walk in the Spirit through love, ministering and serving once another, one another. Now, finally, there's this battle between the two, the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, we know, as I mentioned, Romans 6, at salvation, water baptism, we rise up a new creation. The power of sin is broken. We do not, we are no longer a slave to sin. The uninvited control of sin, we're free from. But then we know we get to Romans 7, where Paul says things like, I wish I know the things that I should do, and yet I don't do them. And then I know the things that I shouldn't do, and yet I do them. So why is that the case? There's not the uninvited power of sin or control of sin anymore. Now it's the battle, the real battle for true freedom. Am I going to follow the flesh, or am I going to follow the Spirit? Right? And even Paul says, if you read through, we don't have the time to go that way, that way, but read Romans 6, 7, and 8. I used to always think, I got to Bible school and I was super intellectual and thought I knew everything. And I was going to ask, shouldn't these be out of, are these chapters out of order? Like, shouldn't it be like 6, then 8, or 6, 7, then 6, then 8, maybe? Maybe they're just reversed. And, I'm, and then the more I realize, I'm like, no, these are in the right order. This is exactly the way it is. <laughs> of course, we struggle with the flesh because then you get to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. Verse 1, to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the, the, the legal implication, the legal power of sin is broken at water baptism. We're a new creation. The absence of uninvited control begins. 
But then the flesh begins to war with the spirit because these two cannot be in the same place at the same time. We're going to serve one or we're going to serve the other. And even Paul said, it's a struggle. I struggle. And then we get to verse chapter 8. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned it sin in the flesh. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free. That's where true freedom comes from. It overcomes the law of sin and death. But what's our part? We have to choose. (laughs) You're going to be a slave one way or the other. You want to be a slave that continues to put you in bondage and misery and suffering. And not only that, but you're causing bondage and misery and suffering to everyone else around you as well. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) You're not only making your life miserable, but everyone else's as well. Or do we want to be a slave to Christ where true freedom comes from, where we are free from the law of sin and death? where we are free from that bondage. And we are free to serve him, not out of obligation or any obligatory response, but because we love him and we want to please him and we want to be with him. So what what is our choice? As we close, on the Liberty Bell, there is an inscription from Leviticus 35, verse 10. And it says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof. That's an inscription on our Liberty Bell. And that's really something I think we should do. Proclaim liberty, true liberty, true freedom, throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants. And every time that bell rings, it doesn't ring anymore, I don't think, but it was proclaiming that liberty. We are to proclaim that liberty, that freedom. We are truly the land of the free. But what are we doing with our freedom? Are we using it as a license to do whatever we want? Are we using it as a license to serve ourselves? Well, that's a pretty, that's not a very good way to go. Or are we using it as a license to love the Lord our God and to love and serve others? Because that's where true freedom comes from. And as we walk in the Spirit, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus will set us free from that law of sin and death and we can walk in victory, walk in true freedom. It's such a release and such a freedom from bondage and oppression. I don't know how people do it, honestly, because you wake up in such heaviness. You know, every now and then you make a mistake, you mess up, nobody's perfect. And you wake up and you're like, oh, I feel like I got a bag of bricks on my shoulders. <laughs> and then you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. And you repent, you cleanse. And it's like gone. I don't know. How, that's true freedom, true release. Other than carrying that around the whole time, that would be miserable, right? So what are we doing with our free- freedom? What are we doing with our freedom? Okay. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom you've given us first in the natural in this country that we can come and gather together and and praise and worship you and assemble together in, and to worship you, Lord. We, but we also thank you for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets us free from the law of sin and death. We thank you, Lord, that the blood of Jesus 
broke the, broke the power of sin over us. We're no longer a bond slave to sin. Lord, we thank you that you broke that on the cross and that your death, burial, and resurrection signifies true freedom to us. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would renew this in our hearts, Lord, that you would renew us to serve you, to, be, to give our lives to you, and then out of love, serve others as well, Lord. We just ask that you would bless the remainder of our day together, bless our fellowship tomorrow as we get together and, and celebrate, Lord. And we just praise you and ask that you would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.